0: Hey Sarah. Hi Kim. How's it going? It's
1: going well. It's been too long. I know it has been quite a long time. (laughs) It's Um, just been busy. It has been and uh, but we are diving in like with an awesome episode because we have Laura Hilliger
2: here. Hello Laura. Hello. Hi Kim. Hi Hi, Sarah. Thank you so so much much for having me on.
0: Oh we're so excited.
2: Yeah. So
1: why don't you, do you mind introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Laura Hilliger. I am a director at We Are Open Cooperative. I've been working sort of in the space between nonprofits and technology uh, most of my career, but I have a background in education. So I've done quite a bit with educational nonprofits, educational programming, and earlier in my career uh, quite a bit with schools uh, and and, like tech literacy, web literacy, these kinds of topics and themes. I'm calling in from Germany at the moment. And I don't know what else I should say about myself. I guess you'll hear quite a bit in the next half an hour or so. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about
0: what you're doing in Germany and how you landed in Germany?
2: Yeah, sure. I used to live in the Bay Area uh, where I met my partner and my partner is German. We were both working at tech, uh, at tech, in tech, uh, in the early 2000s, running all over the Bay Area. Uh, I was teaching at UC Berkeley. Uh, I was doing a bunch of educational programming that's um, sort of between education and tech at the Bay Area Video Coalition, teaching some classes at various little um, kind of tech-focused startups. Uh, I got to teach a class at Pixar once. That was super awesome. And I was I was just doing software training and helping people who were not necessarily webby internet kind of people, uh, how they could think about some of the projects they were doing with a multimedia component. And yeah, and I came to Germany because I always wanted to live in Europe. And uh, my partner, as I said, is German. And so we intended to come for a year. And that was 14 years ago. <laughs> good review for germany
0: sounds like five stars would would stay for 14 Yes, i
2: i definitely found my my home here and really i love europe i i love uh i live in dresden which is about an hour and a half south of berlin and it's just it's a really nice city lots of nature lots of biking not very technically um, advanced, I would say like the tech scene here is only now starting to sort of develop and grow, uh, which is really interesting. Um, and you know, throughout my career, it's been kind of nice to live in a city that isn't just completely inundated with tech, you know, it's, yeah, well, it's especially more if, analog.
1: <laughs> if you were in uh, the Bay area, that was sort of the opposite end of the spectrum for sure. What a change. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I don't know if you remember, but you and I met back in 2013, Um, you were leading a hack jam session and I was just starting to become an educator. So I actually came from tech and was, yeah, just founded tech girls and was trying to find my way of what, you know, how was I going to help entice more girls and women into computer science and coding. And uh, I remember you just had a big impact on me because I was not comfortable with this idea of hacking and, um, you know, doing things on the fly. And after your session, I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> I have to do this all the time. I have to get out of my comfort zone all the time. Oh. Um, <laughs>
2: so thank oh, it you. it warms my heart. Thank <laughs> you. Oh. Well, that's really nice to hear. Yeah. I, um, don't remember the specific hack, Jim, I have to admit, uh, or where it was in the world. Where were we? In Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. And Chad was there. Ooh, I, don't I don't know so. if that helps, but he, he, he is the one who... <laughs> introduced us. <laughs> so in 2013, I was still working for the Mozilla Foundation. I worked for Mozilla for five, five and a half years. And at that time, they were really focused on the intersection of tech and education. So what does it mean in our school systems to actually you know, teach people how to use the internet in a way that is you know, commiserate with the way, where tech was going at that time? And I still think this is a really important theme because even though it's been now eight years since that hack jam, you know, in the education uh, industry, the tech is still a very big theme. And I don't think that everything has been figured out there. Um, Yeah,
0: (laughs) We're both nodding furiously for (laughs) listeners that can't see it. There's a lot of nodding happening.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that experience and then just Mozilla's support of educators at that time was so impactful to me. And I do feel like there's a bit of, you know, since they've kind of left that space and are more about activists and advocating and things like mm. that, I feel like for me, there was definitely a hole of like, oh, okay, how, how do I fill this and how, how can I help others yeah. fill that hole?
2: Yeah, they, uh, Mozilla definitely took a turn several years ago, I guess, um, focusing specifically on tech advocacy and helping people understand some of the issues around technology as opposed to earlier, when, when I back when I was at Mozilla, um, it was really focused on the education system. And I think these themes really relate. Like we definitely need organizations that are helping people understand data privacy, advocating for, you know, regulations that support, you know, the public interest, because there's just there's a lot of money and influence around internet companies. Uh, like the I think we call it, what do you call it? GAFTA. Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, GAFA, it's called, they have a lot of pull in terms of policy. And when it comes to like where policy and education kind of cross over, there's definitely room for advocacy and people who know like both sides of of that, the privacy is the, I think the really big area there. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes into education as well, because we need to be teaching kids and adults too, how you know, what they do on the internet matters and what it actually means for them personally to put data out there, what some of the like data protection laws are about uh, and how to kind of manage their online identities. Because I mean, we all have a very big online footprint or digital footprint it's called. And knowing a little bit about sort of the policies around that is kind of important if you wanna protect yourself from overreach and surveillance. So. It's sort yeah. of a natural progression for, for Mozilla, I guess, but it is a shame that they couldn't just like start a second department, right?
0: Because yeah. <laughs> as education has changed and more things, I think as technology is being taught directly and consciously a little more, things just maybe seem to fall in teacher's laps without a lot of time for them to become experts and to teach something when you haven't mastered it yourself is, is really difficult. So I I work for a wonderful little robotics company and I help teachers to integrate robotics into their curriculum. And most of the feedback that I get is like, nobody taught me how to do this. Like Mm -hmm. it just, all of a sudden one day I was supposed to teach it without having been taught myself and I don't feel comfortable with it. And why on earth would I want to integrate this into my English class when I don't even know how to use it in the makerspace? Like, what am I doing? And so the fact that you are- working in education and technology and advocacy and policy and like everything all at once, it's just so needed.
2: Yeah, it's. I think this is actually one of the biggest problems um, in the educational space is like the funding and advocacy for adult learning programs. Mm-hmm. Like oftentimes a school system, you know, or educational institution, they know that they need to integrate some sort of tech-based learning and far too often, and actually, since like the 80s, it's been okay. Well, we're going to teach people how to use spreadsheets and typing, and what's the third one that's very annoying? That when I hear word like, processing, yes, there you go. Just like oh, we're <laughs> going to use you know Microsoft Word and this. You know, I have my my niece is actually studying media education, uh, which is what Ooh. my master's is in. And she's she's studying it now. And she talks to me in university, you know, and she talks to me about the fact that her her peers can't even use Google Docs like they don't understand collaboration software. And these are, you know, these are people who are in their 20s. And, you know, Google Doc collaboration. I mean, people are even 20-year-olds are still sending around Word documents in her university. And I think it's partially a German thing, maybe, because I think that, you know, since I've been living here, I find that, like, the German tech space is a little bit behind uh, the U.S. Mm-hmm. But from a you know, educational perspective, like, it's just, it is crazy to me that in 2021, there's a you know, a group of 20 year olds who are sending attachments on emails instead of collaborating via collaboration software. And when I heard that I was just dumbfounded, like what, (laughs) this this doesn't make any sense.
0: Especially after a year, a year and a half, two years of almost exclusively virtual learning, right? Like that, that's a lot of Word documents.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Wow. (laughs) and well i mean you know with the like in the german specific context the the there's a really interesting crossover between tech policy and you know learning basically and because like the in europe the data protection laws are quite strong so maybe you've heard of gdpr the data protection law that it, essentially if you go to a website that's based in europe then there's the cookies Uh, The cookies thing, because the European law says that, you know, you need to inform your users when you're setting cookies in the browser. And, you know, other little bits of the law are like, if you were to write a company and tell them that you want them to delete their data, they are legally required to do that. And there's a commission that oversees the, you know, the um, data policy at a European level. And so in Germany, like, you know, I, part of the reason that it's, you know, even after a year and a half of pandemic, uh, folks are struggling with using some of these tools also has to do with the fact that a lot of German organizations and educational institutions are sort of forced into using tools that are very specific around privacy. Um, So like Zoom, for example, really didn't do so great in the privacy realm at the beginning of the pandemic. And the German government was essentially like, okay, well, our public institutions cannot use Zoom, doesn't adhere to privacy policy, so we're going to use this other software. And so some of these, like, this is where kind of, you know, policy and learning comes together because if the policy says you can't use, you know, this very common tool... And the learning says you need to use this very common tool. Then, then there's a clash there. We're going yeah. weird into like European policy, <laughs>
1: but that's <laughs> not just it? in that's just not just in Europe. That happens here as well. The yeah, you know, the schools and this happens more to district level versus a state or national level. But mm-hmm. you know, districts can decide what websites are going to allow and what they don't. So, like, there's some districts that don't allow you to do Scratch, which just blows my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. things like that. So it really. There, there definitely are policy considerations um, related to tech that impact education mm-hmm. as well. So I want to move a little bit beyond uh, into another, another topic that might be related. So one thing that you're very much a proponent of is working in the open and being open. And I know for me, that philosophy, I got a lot from Mozilla as well. And so when I did get into education, I just was all about share, share, share. Like everything I do, I'm going to share because maybe I can be a role model. Maybe they'll be, um, you know, that's another way to find
2: lessons. But what is, what does that mean to you? Sure. So actually, um, I am what's called an open org ambassador. There's a community of people who are considered experts in open source. And we've created a couple of intellectual frameworks to help people understand what what does open really mean. So we defined what what open org is, for example, and we sort of said that there are kind of five principles of open, um, transparency, collaboration, community, adaptability, and inclusivity. So I can just define those very briefly. Um, Transparency is about making sure that everybody has the context that they need to be able to to do the, whatever the work is. So this is, this is stuff like making sure that your, your programs, your policies, your code, all that kind of stuff is documented, that you don't just throw a bunch of code at somebody without any comments and say, here you go, go ahead and try and figure this out. But rather you take time to actually document what you're, doing. And this is in the educational space. This is like, if you're designing educational programs and you reflect on what you're doing and write a blog, for example, that is a, you know, that's a behavior of transparency, like blogging about your work and reflecting openly, sharing early and open, um, early and often, you know, not being so attached to your ideas, but rather getting things out there so that people can respond and help you. And so that you can actually gather knowledge from other people around you. That's kind of all part of the, you know, the benefits of transparency. The adaptability one, and it kind of stems from that. And being adaptable is really what I just said about not being too attached to your idea, but rather allowing other influences in when you see those influences, when you're working openly and you're willing to share your idea before it's fully baked you'll be surprised at how that idea grows and shifts and changes when other people put their hands on it. You know, like we have a saying in the tech world, nothing survives contact with the user. And I think that this, you know, this, this works for programmatic design, curriculum design, you know, any, any sort of intellectual labor that you're putting out there, as soon as you put it in front of someone, they're going to have a different perspective because we Mm -hmm. all do. And being adaptable means hearing those perspectives and, you know, acknowledging them, working them in, you know, and trying to make the, the end product better, whatever that product is, if it's a, uh, I say product, and then I always feel like I need to clarify because in the tech world, a product is like a software product, but I mean, any kind of uh, program design, curriculum design, whatever product, I just did air quotes for listeners. I <laughs> <laughs> like a bell, Ding! Yeah. air quotes. Ding! Air quotes. Oh, that would be a cool... And we should uh a little soundboard
1: all right all right i'm gonna
2: i'm gonna look for a,
1: I'm gonna look for a sound effect
2: <laughs> i've done two principles uh transparency and adaptability and by the way you can find all of this well documented we have a website which maybe we can put in the show notes it's the openorganization.org, Uh, and that's where you'll find this open definition and Behaviors, mindsets, how to do it. There's also a maturity model. So you can kind of take a look at how open is your organization and, you know, where do you want to go? So the third one, inclusivity, this is really about making sure that you are intentional about inclusivity and diversity as well, making sure that you recognize whose voice is not in the room and, you know, who are you designing for and what do they need? And, you know, I think that diversity plays in quite a bit here because we are very, very good at, you know, putting stuff out into the world and, and like standing on our soapbox and saying, here, I'm done. This is the thing. But we don't often pull in voices who of who we're actually impacting. And the more you actually specifically go out and make sure that you're inclusive of those voices, the better your program will be. Again. We all have different perspectives and we need to, if we want to be inclusive, then we need to invite people in because diversity and inclusivity is intentional. It doesn't just happen. Uh, you have to, you know, you have to do it. Collaboration is uh, the fourth principle. These are not in any sort of order. I've just, this is, <laughs> I'm order just saying important. For, they're all quite equal in importance because I mean, the the theory is, is that if you have a community that adheres to these five principles, then the community is healthy. There's a healthy culture. People feel valued. People feel motivated. The work is better, but I always forget which order we wrote them in. So I just, I keep saying four and five so that I remember which one I'm on. (laughs) So the fourth one, collaboration, Uh, I don't think I really need to explain this one. It's really just the idea that you are open to collaboration and you're, you know, you allow people into your world and your work. And, you know, sometimes it gets heated because people have different opinions or, you know, sometimes somebody has to make a decision that's completely natural and normal. But the only way that you can do it is if you actually collaborate with people to see what is the right decision for our community or for this piece of work. And then the last one, community, is like all of the others create community and an open an open project, an open organization. It has this culture of both input and output, and people are invited to connect to each other. You know, I think the big thing about open work is like successful open source projects or open projects have a healthy community. And all of these, these principles are, there are processes and ideas in place to help that community be healthy. And, you know, if you, if you have the other four and there's no community, then you're, then something is wrong. There's something to Mm -hmm. look at there.
1: It seems like something that could be applied to the classroom at a school level, at a district level, all these five factors are are really something great to look at and see Mm -hmm.
2: where you are. A huge part of my career is contextualizing open work for individual industries. And, you know, the tech world uses terminology that maybe doesn't translate like open source, for example, if you say open source, you know, people think it's about code, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's not like when I say open source work. I'm not thinking about just code. I'm also thinking about, you know, being able to trace a decision back to, you know, the meeting notes where it happened, whether I was in that meeting or not, you know, being able to go back to the source of a decision or the the source of a program and really understanding these people who are attributed here and this program design, They were so involved in the creation of it that I can go and pick their brains and I can go and learn from them. And, or maybe I have some feedback that I want to give them and being able to track the thing back to the person that you want to talk to. That's kind of what I mean when I say open source work.
0: I have a question, but I think it's going to lead us down another road. So feel free to feel free to say this is not the time for that, but the idea of open source seems from the outside as though it would clash with intellectual property and proprietary Mm-hmm. privacy. So if anybody can trace back the source of your ideas, then arguably they could steal your ideas or your mm-hmm. your patented brainstorming model that allows you to be the the innovation setter. Do you bump up against that a lot?
2: All the time. And the thing is, is I really truly believe that that mindset is outmoded, outdated, and does not belong in our modern world. Yeah, uh, it is limiting. You don't get the best out of, you know, if you, if you hide in the corner and protect your thing and then bring it out and show it to the world and everybody hates it, then you just (laughs) wasted all of your time in the corner. You know, you can make better work by collaborating with people from the get-go. I do not believe that intellectual property is, I don't think it's right for our world. You know, like uh, the fact that the vaccine has an IP on it, I I'm not going to be very negative right now, but I hate it. And it makes me very angry. <laughs> um, it's not, you know, it's it's silly. And the open source world has proven time and time again that working openly can be profitable, that it can grow big. There are multi-billion dollar tech companies that run on open you know open open source software runs most of the tech industry and like working openly has never been anything but beneficial for me personally but also for all of the organizations that I've ever convinced <laughs> to work a little bit more openly they see the benefits of it as soon as they try it I think that mindset of we have to protect our ideas or somebody will steal them is, I think it's a, you know, industrial revolution idea and we don't live in the industrial revolution anymore. We're past that.
1: I think it's also a level of comfort and fear, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you're open, you're putting yourself out there for the good and the bad. Right. And hopefully, you know, when people start doing that and and are working collaboratively, then it's constructive, but it doesn't, it's not always constructive. And so Mm -hmm. I think there's, especially I'm thinking in education system, you know, teachers are often silos in their classrooms. Nobody's watching them except the students, you know, that the idea of sharing beyond that um, can be intimidating. So what, Mm -hmm. what might be like a first step that you would recommend to anybody who wants to start, working more open?
2: You know, especially for the educators who are listening to this, I think, you know, finding your crew in the internet and finding a sort of a safe space to, to start to step out of your shadow and to start little by little trying to work more openly. I think, you know, be open with your friends first, kind of. And, you know, I think it's really important to understand that openness is not a binary. Uh, it's not you're opened or you're closed. I think, you know, there's there's degrees and there are reasons that some things can't be open. So, you know, for as an example, I've been working with Greenpeace International for six years or so now, and, you know, they really want to be a more open organization. They started as an open organization. Uh, Back in the seventies, their, you know, their origin story was one of a bunch of people who were massively open and it was a time before internet, but they put everything out there And, and they created real change by actually being as open as they were. They, you know, they, they were part of the reason that the environmental movement started to move, you know, but Greenpeace and what they do in the world and some of their campaigns, they can't be open with all of the details because there's, you know, they, it could be damaging to them, to their activists, to them as an organization, et cetera. Right. So they want to be a more open organization, but they also have to manage the risk. And, you know, so I think it's important to understand it's not a binary and that as people, you know, as people get started with it, you know, you have to check your own feeling as well. There is a bit of a, you know, a sort of like trust and confidence thing about openness, where you do need to step over your own shadow and you do need to be aware of the things that society has taught you that aren't mm-hmm. maybe true because, you know, we live in a patriarchal and capitalistic society and that's not necessarily who we are in our nature. It's not necessarily the nature of human beings that we're living in this, this societal structure. And so, you know, I think, yeah, I think it's a lot about self-growth being able to, Mm -hmm. to kind of break out. And I would say, you know, if you get negative reactions, like just remember, you know, one negative reaction has more weight to your limbic lizard brain than a hundred positive reactions. You know, I remember every time somebody was negative about my work but you know, the number of times people are, are, were positive, like I've got one and it was at the beginning of this episode when Kim said that I made a big impression on her and was positive, you know? So mm-hmm. yeah. Do you got to overcome that lizard brain stuff? It really is not useful today. We're, we're due no. for a evolution.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and i <I'm> think <laughs> specifically- so many
2: levels.
0: <laughs> I'm thinking specifically of education where, because in the United States, teacher pay is quite low, and I feel comfortable saying that. I think we're ranked internationally pretty low. And so teachers are finding that they can make a supplementary income selling lessons and ideas that they might be more open sharing if they didn't need the extra income. So with the rise of Teachers Pay Teachers, with the rise yeah. of kind of Teacher Graham and Teacher Twitter and selling these educational materials on Etsy, it feels like maybe that has been a step back for open culture. Because if you can do a drop where you get a bunch of sales and that supplements the fact that you don't get paid for three months out of the year, it's hard to want to give those things
2: away. Yeah, I have to think about that a little bit because you know, the the rise of open educational resources in the last 10 years has also been, I mean, it's just shot straight up, right? Mm-hmm. People are accessing openly licensed materials. I think the the mechanism of capital within the open ecosystem is very different than the mechanism of capital in you know like in regular <laughs> regular capitalistic you know, structures because in the world of open the more open you are the more you talk about your work the more people see you and the more people come to you to ask you to repeat things which you know generates leads generates business you know part of the reason that, the, that we are open co-op actually is, you know, a functional place for me to work is because we are able to, you know, earn our livings by helping people understand the benefits of open. And the reason that we're able to do that is because they, you know, when people Google me, they're like, oh, wow, look at all this stuff, you know, look at all the stuff <laughs> that's out there. And and then they come to me and they say, hey, I saw this activating educators blog post <laughs> that you did in 2012. And I'm like, what did I write? there? (laughs) Um, But but, you know, there's the, like, you know, there's the, this kind of the, this promotional aspect and that doesn't put food on the table, but it kind of puts food on the table. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to clarify that. I think the selling of curriculum is a really interesting example and I don't have a like snappy, well, this is how you can do it in open and still like make a bunch of money. So yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to think about how, like, what's the, you know, how do we actually, you know, influence the educational space to be more open, so that you know people are able to collaborate and think about that?
1: I'm working on a project right now that's a research practice partnership grant. So it's grants money that's helping us pay educators to create computer science infused lessons that then we'll share on an open platform. So I, th- you know, that's one example of. Uh, finding ways to still get educators the money for the work they're doing?
2: You know, it's it's definitely a godsend and a shame that it's generally foundations that are able to support the production of this kind of work. But it's, I mean, it's been like that for a decade. It was the same at Mozilla, right? Like Mozilla Mm -hmm. is a foundation. And when they were running web literacy programs, they had staff. So they had a, you know, they had a cost, but it was it was folks like the Gates Foundation and the MacArthur Foundation that were saying, you know, this is what we want to achieve with a particular program. And then Mozilla was executing it. You know, it's so so that- it's sort of like the
1: workaround to the capitalist system, right? Like right now, that's sort of our workaround. Like the yeah. capitalist system is ultimately the thing we have to figure out, but that's a little big. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So we're not going to solve that today. Not today. So, okay. We would need another no. half hour for that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I love this discussion, but I want to do one. I want to talk about one more thing before we get to the end here. And that is a little bit more about the, we are open co-op and what sure. you do there. And then I want to talk about the spirit of that little graphic you made.
2: Yeah. So we are open. We are four member. We have an intern who is studying media education and we have an administrator. So we're six in total. And we are really a collective of activists and thinkers with a lot of experience uh, in technology, a lot of experience in education, and a lot of experience in nonprofit. We have, some of us have worked in for-profit um, tech-focused companies. All of us have worked. in. <laughs> All of us are computer geeks and Mostly, I mean, predominantly what we are doing, especially since the beginning of the pandemic, is helping people integrate tech into their normal working lives. So helping organizations go through digital transformation, We do a lot of digital transformation. We also do a lot of teaching and learning um, stuff. So we're, uh, I don't know if you guys know Participate, but we're doing some open badges work with Participate at the moment. Uh, We're working with several climate focused nonprofits, both uh, large and small. We were very fortunate during the pandemic. We worked with this funding network called Catalyst, and they had 102 charities, small and medium-sized charities who were at the beginning of the pandemic thrown into a world where they couldn't run workshops anymore? They mm-hmm. weren't on the streets anymore. They couldn't do their community organizing, and they all had to figure out how do we survive this? What are how can we possibly help our constituents, for lack of a better word, in in the moment? How can we help our vulnerable, vulnerable and marginalized groups if we can't see them? And um, the Catalyst funders ran programs to help them learn how to use tech, to be able to connect to people, learn how to, because I mean, the in the Western world, access is no longer as big as an issue as it used to be. Most people have some way to access the internet, not all people, but most of them. And so, you know, we we've spent the last year and a half working with lots of little charities who just, they need some geeky people to help them understand how, The internet is not just tech, it is community and it is, it is people. And, you know, just because we have a camera between us right now, doesn't mean we're not connecting as humans. And, you know, from an educational perspective, like helping folks who work in charities and educators learn how to use tech and still get that human connection. It's not the same, you know, it's not the same as being in the same room. Of course not, but it does have value and it is helpful. So yeah, so sorry, going off on a little tangent there. Um, yeah, so the co-op we work sort of at that level really the space between technology and nonprofit and helping people use digital tools, teaching people about openness and, you know, also creative participatory methodologies to to get stuff done, trying to make their work fun and get rid of some of the, you know, social and cultural norms that we have around work because we're Living in a very interesting time when work is knowledge-based as opposed to, to...
1: So you have this graphic that's the spirit of, and uh, let's see, it's what you should do in the middle, and it's what brings you joy, what are you good at, and what is the work that needs doing?
2: Yeah, so this so- is on our wiki. So we are open. Cooperative is open. Surprise! Um, and so... <laughs> So we have a blog, we have a wiki, our internal policies are documented on the public internet for everybody to see. You're very welcome to comment on them. Uh, it's wiki.weareopen.coop. And Kim is referring to a page. We actually just posted what, sometime in the early summer. Um, mm-hmm. We've been talking a lot about the kind of work that we wanna do and the kind of people that we wanna work with. And you know, we have some strong opinions about things we do not want to do the impact that we want to have on the world is you know we want to we want to push us towards the future and not mm-hmm. towards the past yeah and you know if if i wake up in the morning and i read the news i think there's a lot of people that are clinging on to the past and i think that that is creating a lot of conflict in our world and i you know i want to fight against that and so this page is is really it's kind of a commitment to ourselves that you know we want to do good art uh, good art too but also good work um and and we're just talking about you know some of our climate policies and this graphic what brings what brings you joy well you know, for me and for everybody at the co-op, like we really enjoy connecting with people. We really enjoy being helpful to other people. We enjoy, you know, getting into the weeds of a, a organization or a program or a nonprofit or whatever, and, you know, finding ways that we can make their lives easier, more efficient with some of our techie skills. It's fun and it brings us joy. We're also quite good at that, uh, <laughs> not to toot our own horns or anything. I just looked at the toot other away. question. I was toot, like, toot. Oh.
0: we're always um, trying to get women to, to toot their own horns a little more. So thank you for for leading by example. You are allowed to be talk about how you're good at it's,
2: things. It's still yeah. really uncomfortable though. Like I know, and thank you for <laughs> for reminding me. But it's so hard. Yeah. You know, I I'm gonna toot my own horn again in 2020, I won the Women in IT Digital Leader of the Year Award. Um, yeah. And I never tell anybody. And the fact I just said it is only because you told me to toot my own horn. and I feel oh really awkward gosh. now. <laughs> Get out of that patch. Sew it on all your jackets. Like, <laughs> curious I never tell anybody yeah but (laughs) no when she won that I'm like I know her (laughs) thank you I was totally floored I don't I was not expecting it when they announced my name I didn't hear it and I had like you know food in my mouth I was like what (laughs) oh yeah yeah so what so what we're good at like what brings us joy is, is connecting with people and helping them uh what we're good at is like the techie kind of stuff um I'm you know I'm really good at seeing systems and seeing like complex ecosystems and being able to help people understand a 10,000 foot view. And also, you know, some of the practicalities around how do we actually get to this vision that's, you know, three, five years in the future. And, you know, the, the, smaller tech skills come in really handy. Like, you know, I, my bachelor's was in multimedia design and animation. So the fact that I can, not very good at design, honestly, like I'm really not, but the fact that I have a little aesthetic sense, that's very helpful. Um, And then the last part of this circle or this graphic is what is the work that needs doing? Um, And underneath the example is climate and justice solutions. And that's, you know, I work predominantly in the social space. I, I care very deeply about climate and anything social justice. I think education is a social justice issue. I think you know. I think policy stuff, so data policy, tech activist stuff. This is also, you know, a justice issue in the end. And and I'm quite keen to hopefully in my lifetime live in a world where some of the stuff that we have to deal with just doesn't exist anymore. Some of the yeah, it
1: is a, it is a long it is a long slog though.
2: And I and I feel like
1: just when we, you know, make some progress, then we also go backwards. So yeah. Uh, But I love this graph. I think this graphic is just an excellent for anybody who's just like, especially coming out of the pandemic, and you know, oh yeah, our headspace is not always great. Um, If you need a reminder of what you should be doing, I think this is a great, a great. Or you're looking for for a new
0: direction? Like what a great roadmap. Yeah.
1: Because often you will end
0: up focused on one circle or only two. And it really, these three paint the whole picture if you want a job that fulfills you in multiple different ways. Well, there I mean, are... I
1: could ask you a thousand more questions. I but... Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> but we are running out of time. Sarah, do you have any final? I just want to talk to you for more hours. Just
0: thank you so much for, I learned so, so much from you and I'm planning on homing through your website and, and learning even more because you have so much great stuff online. I'm looking forward to sharing that graphic that we just talked about. If if we can share it on our Instagram and and point people towards it and just sharing your resources so everybody can can hang out with you a little extra. <laughs>
2: Thank you so much. I'm very pleased uh, to, to see you both, to meet you both, and to, to have the opportunity to have this conversation. I love this conversation, and I definitely um, think that it's too short, so we should just do it again sometime. Bye, everyone.